Evening all, how are you going? There's an exam after the uh, sermon and uh, you've got to recite the genealogy verbatim. So I hope you've been taking notes. Uh, by the way, <clears throat> I'm the son of Jack, the son of Charles II, son of Charles, son of Thomas, son of Thomas. And the last Thomas is actually buried over there in St Peter's Cemetery. And I didn't realise that until the bicentennial, the bicentennial year being 1988, when people from the Anne Forbes um, Society, First Fleet of Society, came and visited our church. And um, I put the connection together. And Paul Bradley can tell you all the stories about what's over in the cemetery. Um, but when you go and visit my forebear, say good day. Uh, now, before we start tonight, uh, I want you to open your Bibles um, or your phones at Luke chapter 3. Um, oh, by the way, if anybody, anyone here pregnant? No? I was just thinking that genealogy gives you a lot of options for names for, for the baby. So there's another place you can look except for those baby name books, okay? So with your book, with your Bible open, because you've got to check what I'm saying, um, let me pray to start. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we meet together here in your place uh, with your spirit, that your Holy Spirit will teach us, uh, admonish us, uh, and correct us so that what we do will be pleasing in your sight. Father, may the words that I speak be the words of your lips uh, through Luke and uh, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm doing something which is a little bit unusual, and that is timing what I've got to do. I will um, tell you why, because... I've got to condense what I'm going to say to you tonight into 10 minutes for next weekend. I've got to go and preach at another church and they've only given me 10 minutes. So um, hold on to your hats. <laughs> All right. As we... Um, slide one, please, uh, Lockie. Up there? Cool. Okay, I can't see it up the back. As we unpack this packy, uh, passage, I want you to see how repentance turns our hearts from focusing on ourselves to focusing on God, okay? Not focusing on us, but focusing on him. And that's what I'm attempting to do with, the, uh, with what I'm, I've got here today. Now, <clears throat> this particular passage from Malachi encapsulates John the Baptist's mission, his message, Jesus' salvation and judgment. So we'll be looking at those, but in the end, what I want to do is draw it together and look at what this means for us, okay? So be with me on the journey. It was the year 28 AD, anybody feeling old? And the people in the region of Judea were going about their business. The relationships between the different levels of civil government and religious administration in Judea were not always harmonious, a bit like today. The Romans and the Jewish leaders had different political, different ideological, different religious priorities. The Jewish leaders had serious concerns about what their Roman rulers were on about. There was an appearance of harmony in the, in the country, but it was fragile. The harmony wasn't um, rock solid. To the Jews, God was the father of their nation. He had protected them throughout history and there was no question in their minds that he would continue to do so in the future. 
They saw themselves as a people set apart from all the other nations because of the promises that God made to their forefather Abraham. To them, their history and heritage was very important. They held on to God's promise that one day God would send a Messiah, a mighty warrior, a bit like David that we've been reading about, who would rid them of their Roman oppressors, chase them out of the country. To the Jews, this was their ultimate hope, their goal in life, to live without Roman oppression, to live a life of self-governance, to live in harmony under Jewish law, just like it was in the past. God's people then, God's people now. That promise permeated their understanding and their worship. But it didn't seem to make much difference in the way that they lived their lives. Because they wanted to chart their own future. They wanted to be free to live under the law of Moses, to be free of Roman interference. They talked about God as if he was there for them, but their lives showed that they had no real heart for God. John's mission was to prepare the way for Jesus. At this time in 27 AD, out in the wilderness of Judea, a Nazarite named John was receiving a word from God. God was commissioning him to proclaim a message that would turn Jewish society upside down and bring people back to God. God had been silent for 400 years from Malachi to now, but now he was again in direct communication with his people. John was the present-day Elijah that the prophet Malachi talked about. God chose John to deliver a message to his people and to prepare the way for the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah foretold this event in, in Isaiah 40. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in and every mountain made low. The crooked roads become straight and the rough ways smooth. John's job was to get the Jews ready for the coming of the kingdom of God, the Messiah, an event of such significance that everything must be ready for his arrival. I looked up on the internet when I was preparing this what the protocols were for the arrival of the royal family. There were three pages of notes. I looked up what the arrival for the President of the United States was. There were four pages of notes. There's a whole lot of preparation that needs to be done for important people. But the image that Isaiah uses here relates to the physical preparation, those things which need to be put in place, cutting the lawn, doing, putting the dishes in the... Uh, my son actually said, in response to Rick's question this morning, you hide the dirty dishes in the oven if somebody's coming over. <laughs> of greater importance than dirty dishes, of greater importance than the President and the Queen, is the preparation of your heart to receive the Messiah. So John was not only on about the physical issues or the behavioural issues, he was on about the heart. So John is preparing the hearts of the people to receive forgiveness. Now, 
from all the description we have here, John wasn't much to look at. He must have had a commanding voice, though, because Luke tells us that when he spoke, crowds gathered around to listen to him, to what he had to say. So what was it about John's message that caused such a stir? Well, if you look at the slide, when I get it up, John went out into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John told those who would listen that they needed to get ready to meet God's Messiah. To get ready, they needed to repent, take hold of the forgiveness that he has for them. To receive forgiveness, they needed to turn their hearts to God so that they could respond to the Messiah. The words that John spoke were not familiar to the ears of the audience that were listening to him. The message John was bringing was not only important, but urgent. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Who warned you to run away from imminent calamity? This wasn't an address about something that was trivial. It was about a calamity that was about to happen. Who was it that set off the alarm bells? Who put out the warning bulletins? Take notice, he was saying. Destruction is about to befall you. Turn your hearts to God. Repent and be baptised to receive the forgiveness of your sins. This is the message that John was bringing. But John doesn't leave it there. He goes on to say that their repentance and their subsequent forgiveness of sins will change them so much that their lives will be noticeably different than before. John expects that they will now demonstrate their repentance by bearing fruit, not literally, figuratively. With the benefit of other scripture, we know that the fruits that he's talking about are what Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Difficult things, as you and I know, to put into practice in our lives. This, John says, is producing fruit in keeping with their repentance. John expects that people will notice that repentance changes the way that they live. People's hearts, their minds and their behaviours all change. Repentant people think more about honouring God as their father and thinking about others above looking after themselves. Now, some of the Jews in the crowd may have been thinking that John, what John was saying didn't apply to them uh, because they were descendants of Abraham, after all, and they were um, saved by virtue of their ancestry. I'm a Jew, descendant of Abraham, doesn't apply to me. I'm already there. Today, it'd be a bit like us saying, we come from a Christian family, or my forebears are buried in a Christian cemetery, or uh, we go to church regularly. But it isn't our background that saves us. It's 
It's our personal relationship with Jesus. And that's what he's trying to get across to these people. He really makes his point that when he says, if God wants to, he can take the stones, the stones that are lying around, not on the stage, but on the ground where he's speaking, and turn them into his people. Nothing is too hard for God. Well, the people in the crowd who came to be baptised, obviously responding to what John had to say, began to get a bit uncomfortable with the implications of what John had to say. They clamoured to ask him about their personal... Excuse me, John? John, what about me? I'm a soldier. What do I need to do? John, what about me? I'm a tax collector. Any tax collectors in there? I'm a tax collector. What about me? What do I need to do to avoid God's wrath? Well, John, in general terms, tells the crowd to be a number of things, to be generous, to be honest with their dealings, to share what they have, to be content with what they're given, to treat people fairly. Notice that he never told them to change their job. Just work at what they did with honesty, integrity and contentment. You know, sometimes when you and I read scripture, we think that some of the examples that are given about godly living uh, don't apply to us. They actually apply to those nasty Romans or they apply to those recalcitrant Jews, never us. Someone else is always needing to change their life, not me. But, you know, scripture is talking to us. God is speaking to us through his word to take notice about what it is that he's saying. Just like the Jews of John's time, repentant people like you and I should be exhibiting godly behaviour towards God and towards others and bearing the fruit of the forgiveness that we have received. God cares about how we do what we do. We all encounter situations in our day-to-day life that bring temptation. All of us, none of us are immune. There's a temptation to be lazy at work. There's a temptation to do the minimum required, just to fly under the boss's radar, just to fly underneath, just getting through. There's a temptation to put others down, to ruin their reputation, but to boost ours. In some situations, the temptation to steal is so great that there's almost an unspoken expectation to take what belongs to the boss because everyone else is doing it. Almost daily we face the temptation to circumvent laws, to run the ragged edge, to break the rules because it's in our best interest at the expense of everything else. And to give in to this temptation, well, that'll have some serious consequences in the long run. Because alongside the forgiveness that we are offered as repentant people and the salvation we are given as a result of our forgiven state, there's also a judgment. And Jesus is the one who brings both the salvation and the judgment. In Luke chapter 3 verse 9 we read that the axe is already at the root of the trees of those people not bearing fruit and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down thrown into the fire. And we read further on in verse 17. I'll bring it closer to my eyes. 
His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with forgiveness also comes judgment. And if we're not producing the fruits of repentance, then we'll end up incinerated. Not a good thought. It's a very serious matter. John's message is abrupt. John's message is direct. There's no wriggle room in this. Well, John must have spoken with such authority and conviction that the people around listening to him were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Is this bloke the Messiah? He's speaking so well, so forthright, very clear. They must have been both excited and nervous. And the buzz in the crowd would have been happening and John would have reacted to that. And he said, he intercepted their thoughts and he said in an emphatic way, I am not the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but there is one who is more powerful than I and will come the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And what will he do? He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit for those who are saved and with fire for those who are not. No, I'm not the Messiah, said John. And he explains that he and the Messiah are like chalk and cheese. In fact, there's so much difference between the two that John said that he considered himself unworthy to even do the most menial of tasks, the most menial of tasks that a slave could do. He was unworthy to even bend down and untie the Messiah's sandals. You see, John's job was to prepare the way, to get things ready for the arrival of the Messiah. God sent John to point the way to Jesus. He was like the signpost. Jesus is over there. My words are right, but Jesus is over there. And it seems that Jesus was sort of waiting in the queue as John was baptising people. Uh, Luke tells us that when all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. There was no particular fanfare leading up to that. But his baptism was not like any of the other baptisms that John did. Now, to better understand why a perfect, sinless Jesus undertook to be baptised, I found it helpful to refer to material in one of the other Gospels, in Matthew's account. In Matthew 3, 13 to 17, we read that Jesus was baptised to fulfil righteousness, fulfil all righteousness. In being baptised, Jesus officially consecrated himself to God's service. In a way, at the baptism, God sort of put his stamp on of, of approval on Jesus as meeting all the requirements of righteousness for salvation. He was to be the one who could offer salvation through his death eventually. And it also marked a handover, a bit like passing the baton, a handover of the proclamation of God's message to repent from John, who had been carrying it to that point, to Jesus, who had carried on from here on in. And it was publicly declared in the midst of all those people in the River Jordan. It marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John had pointed the way to the Messiah and was now handing over to Jesus. As far as everything else is concerned, John's job was finished. Luke's genealogy of Jesus shows that he is a true son of David a direct descendant of Abraham. 
And by extending the genealogy the way that Luke did, all the way down to Adam, he wants to remind us that Jesus was here not only for the Jews, but for all people, Gentiles and Jews alike. Now, from this point in Luke's Gospel, he will focus almost exclusively on Jesus and Jesus' ministry. His temptation is the next uh, part of the chapter uh, and the beginning of his public ministry. So what are we to take home from all of this, having listened to everything I said? What's, what, what is our response going to be? Where are our hearts? Is our heart turned towards God? Well, the message, I think, of John holds true today as it did then. We need to prepare ourselves for repentance, to acknowledge that we are incapable of living to the standard God has set for us. Our capacity to do so is severely limited by our desire to focus on ourselves, not on God. Repentance brings us at the feet of Jesus. Our salvation is freely gifted to us when we truly repent. But our repentance and our acceptance by Jesus will cause a noticeable change in our lives. What John is pointing out. With Jesus in our lives, everything changes and it's noticeable. Others will see it. Let me just close by sharing a story about a man who actively set out to disprove the gospel when his wife became a Christian. Lee Strobel was a journalist. At one point in his life, he was the editor, the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune in the States. And when his wife came home one day and announced that she'd become a believer, he avowed that he would investigate the claims and debunk them and save his wife from the sect of Christianity. He figured he could do it in a weekend. He couldn't. It took him two years. He interviewed people, he interrogated people, he read documents from a, a, a range of scholars that specialised in Christianity, New Testament and ancient history. After those years of investigation, he discovered that the evidence for Christ, his existence, his birth, his death, his life, his divinity and his resurrection was overwhelming. By the end of his journey, he realised that as an atheist, the atheist he was, atheism simply didn't hold up against the evidence. And he took the next step. He repented of his sin and became a believer. And with the Spirit's help, he started to turn his life around. He was married and had, uh, had one daughter at the time. And his family had suffered badly because of his hedonistic, narcissistic, drunken lifestyle, womanising at all hours. But his life began to be impacted by the fact that he became a Christian. Now, his daughter, who was five years old at the time, 
had only known a father who was absent, who was angry, who kicked holes in the wall because he was frustrated and angry, who came home drunk, who lied and cheated. She watched as God changed her dad in front of her eyes. She watched and listened for about four or five months. Then one day she came up to her mum, her mum's name was Leslie. She said, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. And we're told that at age five, she became a believer. And today she and her and her husband and their family are working in a seminary in the, in the States, as is her younger brother, working full-time in the ministry. You see, Lee's repentance resulted in a huge change of behaviour, a huge change in his heart, in his mind. His daughter saw that change and she wanted what he had. Do people around you and me want what we have? Or is there insufficient change in our life that the question never gets asked of us? A repentant heart brings a change of heart and a change of heart brings out the fruit of the spirit. If there is no fruit, then is our repentance in question? If there is no repentance, then there is no salvation. If there is no salvation, there's no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray that people around us will repent and receive the salvation and forgiveness that we have in Jesus because we demonstrate that to them. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it challenges us every time we, we read it. We pray that with the help of your spirit, we will be constantly repenting of the way that we stray from the way that you want us to live. Heavenly Father, help us not only to try and do it ourselves, but help us to also rely upon our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us, to hold us accountable for the things that we do. And Father, admonish us and help us to become more like Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. <laughs>